And you know, there's a large uh, prophetic story that the Lord has woven together over several, several years and really made it clear to us, um, you know, a couple years ago, it was actually at the 10th anniversary for the House of Prayer that we celebrated right here, uh, that the Lord began to clarify to us that he was inviting us to do a solemn assembly at Stone Mountain. And if you don't know what a solemn assembly is, it's, a, it's an all-day prayer event, fasting and prayer and worship, where we cry out to God, Joel 2 style, where we rend our hearts and not our garments. We cry out to God to release revival in the land. And we knew that the Lord was speaking to us about dealing with the, the issues of, of historic racism, bias, prejudice, repenting over that sin, and, and, and then crying out to God to release his power and his presence and his glory. And so it was uh, uh, in, in 2016 that the Lord really began to clarify that for us. And immediately we started meeting with pastors and leaders across the city. Well, what I want to do right now is I want us just to take a look at this video that we're going to show. It kind of lays out the prophetic story, and then I'll bring us up to speed on, on where things are with one race. So let's go ahead and show the video. The opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of that opportunity. And for me, one of the things the Lord has spoken to me about is His plan for revival in the city of Atlanta. And it was in 2003 that I was in a time of prayer, and I had this inner vision, and the Lord showed me this R and this X and this R. And He said to me, racism and religion are the two key principalities that need to be taken down over the city of Atlanta so that the spirit of death would, would fall and come down and that revival would be released in the city. And I knew that Atlanta had been called Terminus historically and that that spirit of death was represented in that name. The, the end of the, the Eastern rail line or Terminus being a Greek word that speaks of death. And it was in that place of prayer I began to really understand that God had a plan to see revival released in our city. Well, it was. Just a little while later, I was in a car and I was driving and I was just thinking about this racism and religion and, and revival and bringing down the spirit of death. And, and as it is sometimes, you, you kind of can question yourself, did you hear the Lord? So I prayed a little private prayer. I said, God, if that was you, would you just confirm it to my heart? And I just prayed that prayer. And when I opened my eyes, the car I was in, we were crossing a railroad track and I looked up and the very first thing I saw was this R, this X, and this R. And I knew the Lord was speaking. Racism and religion needed to be taken down over the city of Atlanta, and they needed to be replaced with reconciliation and revival. So it was later that year, 2003, that I got a phone call from a prophetic man in California, and he uh, he said, I have a word for you. And he said, I thought it was for someone in Stone Mountain, but uh, he goes, I believe it's for you. And he said, the word is this, he's about to release a season of apostolic government to the city of Atlanta, and it's gonna be followed by a massive move of the spirit, massive revivals coming to Atlanta, Georgia. And I, you know, I heard that word and I was just, I was just encouraged because revival had been a, a key prayer point and burden of mine for, for many years. And I remembered that I had this tape that someone had sent me from Atlanta and, and they said that there was a prophetic word on there that they thought would be pertinent to me. 
And so I took that tape and I thought, well, I've already gotten one good prophetic word. Let's just see what's on this. And I put that tape in. And on the tape was this prophetic man named Sean Bowles. And he was prophesying in Atlanta in 1996. And he was describing this encounter he'd had with the Lord when he had been at Stone Mountain Park earlier that day. And as he was at Stone Mountain, he was uh, viewing this statue that had been brought in for the Olympics. And this statue was a statue of five different horses. And the statue was entitled, The Day the Wall Came Down. But the middle horse had the saying from Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. And while he was there viewing the statue, the Lord began to speak to him. And the prophetic word was this, that God was releasing a season of apostolic government to the city of Atlanta, and it was gonna be followed by a massive move of the Spirit. A massive revival was coming to Atlanta. When I heard that on the tape, I was absolutely blown away because it was the same prophetic word that I'd received on the phone just a few minutes before. Well, he went on to say this, that the Lord was gonna change the testimony of Stone Mountain. It was now gonna be a place of unity and healing, and that he was gonna light up Stone Mountain with the glory of God. And then he said this, that the sign that this prophetic word would come to pass is that a plane would crash into Stone Mountain. So I thought, let me read this letter again and see what it says. And the letter that had come with the tape told me that a plane had in fact crashed into Stone Mountain in 2003, even seven years to the day that the prophecy had been given. So fast forward now to 2016, and it was the 10th anniversary of IHOP Atlanta's 24-7 worship and prayer. And Lou Engel, our dear friend, was gonna come and speak that night on our 10th anniversary. So he gets here and he says, Billy, I've gotta talk to you. I've just been in the Houston airport and I ran into Sean Bowles. He goes, and Sean told me to tell you that the word for Atlanta is still on. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. Let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. We begin to realize this, that the plane crashing into Stone Mountain, it was a picture of the prayer movement hitting that ancient stronghold. See, it was in 1915 that the Ku Klux Klan for the very first time burned a cross publicly. And the place they did that was on the top of Stone Mountain. We're going to a place where historically sin has been allowed to dwell. And I, I believe that if freedom rings, and Dr. King said this, said let freedom ring. So ringing freedom may not have been in his life. We may be carrying actually the legacy of Dr. King even now. I think that for pastors, this is hugely important for us to recognize how we have to lead the way in reconciliation. I believe right now so very vital for the church leadership, having a reconciled heart to come together, cry out to God, and come against that stronghold of racism. I 
believe the Lord has marked Atlanta as a gate city, and he wants to visit this gate city with kingdom authority and release power on the church that will birth massive revival. And when Atlanta falls to the kingdom of God, the Southeast will fall to the kingdom of God, and the nation will feel the wave of the power of God's move of the spirit and revival. Let's all stand to our feet for a moment. Let's just pray right now. Father, don't just wait on me to pray. You pray. Father, right now, we come before you in the name of your matchless son, Jesus, and it's only by grace that we're able to stand here. And we recognize, God, we're in an unusual and unique moment in your calendar. And Father, we recognize that this is a moment that the church must stand on the right side of history. We must stand for unity. We must stand against racism. We must stand against dead religion. We must stand for revival and reconciliation. And so, Abba, I'm asking that even right here in our spiritual family, that there would be an epicenter for healing and unity, for reconciliation and justice, and for revival to break forth. And God, even as we hear this prophetic word and we agree in our hearts, we say we recognize that there's a part that we must play, that we must engage with what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. And so with our whole heart right now, Abba, we ask you, would you come? Bring us in to unity with your Son. Bring us in to the unity of the Spirit, the bond of the Spirit. Love together by the power of the cross across every tribe, culture, people, and nation. We want to be a living example of what it looks like when the blood of Jesus washes away the color line. And we want to see every nation, every tribe, every culture celebrated and affirmed manifesting their graces and the gifts that you've given. Would you do it through this spiritual family and do it, God, all over this city. Mark Atlanta as a city that shows forth the glory of God through the bride in every facet, in every denomination, in every congregation, in every culture. So, Lord, we humble ourselves before you because we can't do this without you. So even this morning, as I endeavor to bring the word, I'm asking you, would you put grace upon my lips, even as it's upon Jesus' lips, and let me speak the word of God? Would you cause our hearts to be attentive to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying? Lord, we agree with your activity right now. We agree. If you agree with the activity of the Holy Spirit right now, would you just say a hearty amen and amen. Amen. All right, let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise, and you may be seated. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. You may be seated. So that kind of gives you the picture of how we got on this journey. I personally have been one that's 
prayed and preached and talked much about racial unity for the last 25 years just in ministry. It was something that was a, a core value of the church that I, that I first came up in, Victory World Church. And so, um, you know, it was something that we walked out with great intentionality. And I'll just confess a thing to you right now, just in humility, that um, when we started the house of prayer, I, I felt like I wanted to live an example. And, and, and what we did was we walked out intentionally racial unity through relationship and through, you know, how we operated as a ministry. Every person affirmed and their value and able to, to step into leadership and, and all sorts of different environments in the ministry. But something happened in the summer of 2016. There were multiple shootings of unarmed black men that were put on news and across social media. And then there was a a retaliation in Dallas, five police officers were shot. And I remember my first phone conversation, I was in the Middle East on a missions trip, and my first phone conversation was with Garland Hunt, who you saw in that video. And we had been praying together, we'd been asking God for how we were to go about calling the city to racial reconciliation and revival, and, and we got on the phone together, and, and it was, in our conversation that we realized that we had to take a leadership role from the church in talking about the issues of racial unity and justice and what that looks like through a cross-centered, Jesus-centered vantage point. And so I came home and immediately got in process and we, we preached a, a series called United on, on racial reconciliation. And, the first thing I said in that series was I, I stood and I publicly confessed to all the people of color in the congregation. I said, I've been, I've been loud with my actions, but silent with my words, and it's not been enough, and I asked them to forgive me. Because there's, there's time to walk out what you believe, but if you don't say what you believe, nobody knows what you're walking out. And the church has to be a leading voice right now for cultural unity and racial reconciliation. It must, because if the church doesn't lead in this area, other voices will, and the voices that will lead will lead us astray. They won't lead us to Jesus. They'll lead us to political figures and social activities, and they'll lead us to all sorts of measures that actually aren't able to change the heart of men. And beloved, that's where the issue lies because we celebrate the civil rights movement. We celebrate all the ground that was taken through the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. And so much legislation has changed. But what hasn't changed in many, many quarters is the heart of people. And so unless we have a gospel-centered, Jesus-empowered movement of unity and reconciliation calling people to the cross of Jesus, there will be no shift in the culture. Because though you can change laws, you can't change hearts unless you have the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so 
this is where we are. That's what one race is. It's not a political movement. It's not a social movement. It is a prayer movement centered around Jesus, centered around the cross, built on relationship and intercession. That's where it's at. With public declaration of our intention to see racism completely destroyed in this generation and an entire new generation come forth that will live in unity that will live completely reconciled, that will live in conciliation in America, that will actually live out what Jesus' dream was in John 17 when he prayed and he said, Father, that all that believe in me, that they would be one, even as you and I are one. And so that's what we're gonna do this month in our spiritual family, and, and here's what's amazing, guys. There are literally dozens, I don't really even know the number, it's many, many churches right now across the city that are preaching these same messages this entire month. Can you imagine that? Many pulpits right now declaring this same message of racial unity, of of deliverance from dead religion all through the cross of Jesus. It's happening right now. I've never heard of such a thing. So what does it mean for us as a spiritual family? It means this. We're on a journey together. We're going on a journey together. We're not into having a pep rally or a one-stop shop where everything is just kumbaya and we just move on. This is who we will be forever. We will be a people living in cultural reconciliation understanding one another deeply, and then being an example to many, many others. That said, and we will be saying, we live united by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Every person is valuable. Every person is made by God. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we will live this out and declare it with clarity from here until the Lord Jesus returns. Amen. And so that's where we are. We've got to be prophetic. We've got to be socially aware, but we've got to be prophetic with the word of the Lord. We've got to walk that out with our words, our deeds, our our actions, and and we're going to see this thing shift. I am convinced that we are going to see in this generation the tide of racism completely shift. And then I believe this, millennials ones that are coming after the millennials, I think they call y'all Generation Z. You're gonna be living in a completely new environment. The culture is gonna be completely different. And I would just tell you, if you're Generation X or older, we've gotta get with it. Because the young generation already gets it, that racial division is ridiculous, that it's sin, and they don't want to live like that any longer. And so we've got to get with it from the older generations so that we can actually bring a young generation into the destiny and the dream of God. Amen. So here's where we're at. We're not going to be silent. I've been completely aware over, you know, almost 25 years in ministry. I watch the church, and when the church goes silent on a topic that's burning in the culture, I realize this, there's warfare on that topic. And you've historically seen at times of great challenge and crisis, there will, um, 
typically be only a few voices from the church to speak up. And many in the church go silent because they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to lose their constituency. They don't want to lose the, the, the people and the money. Well, I promise you, we're going to speak the word of the Lord regardless of the people and the money. We're going to speak truth to power. We're going to speak a word from heaven. And we're not going to speak into a cultural sort of vacuum that requires the, the, the proclaimers to sort of fit in nicely. We're just not going to do that. And so when I've seen the church go silent, I've always taken it as a personal challenge, just the way I'm wired. So when the church is silent, that's when I tend to get loud. That's when Jeff tends to speak up. When the church won't step in it, that's, when, that's what we're wired for. We're made for war. We're made to step in and speak into the, to the vacuum and declare the word of the Lord. And so we won't be silent we're going to speak. We're going to speak with clarity. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany during Nazism. And, and I don't know if you recognize fully what happened in Nazi Germany, but a massive portion of the church actually traded in their Bibles for Mein Kampf, Hitler's book. And they took their crosses down and they hung swastikas. And so Bonhoeffer was a leading voice in what they called the professing church, those who would not trade in the witness of the gospel for something demonic and anti-Semitic. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And man, when I think about Bonhoeffer, I always take courage because most people don't realize this about his story. He wrote many books, and he had a community of faith that was a professing community. And, uh, but right there at the end of World War II, when, when Adolf Hitler saw the writing on the wall, when he knew his end was imminent, he knew that his regime was coming down, just two weeks before Adolf Hitler took his own life, he sent message. He said, hey, execute Bonhoeffer. And I think about that witness. I mean, what about that, that Bonhoeffer so disrupted that Antichrist leader that at the end of his life, he just couldn't get him off his mind. He says, send him on. <laughs> and Bonhoeffer got the promotion. Yeah. Front row seats at the throne room of God. Not a bad thing. But I just think about what a testimony and how many over years of professing Christ didn't find themselves on the right side of history, not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, what happens is this, that the church tends to shrink back because of fear. We shrink back because of the unknown. We're intimidated by what we don't know and then there's loud voices, many times inspired by the principalities that are governing regions and, and cities and governments. There's loud voices in the press and the media, and they say, if you say anything about this, you are a hater, or you are completely out of line. And so I look at that fear and intimidation that comes against the church, and there's all sorts of deception and the church, they won't, they tend to not risk it. I just don't see that in the Bible. 
I don't see a play it safe, stay inside the lines, make sure you don't offend anybody kind of gospel in the scripture. I don't see that. What I see is a Jesus who preaches boldly in the face of massive opposition, even to the place where he finally is flipping over tables to make his point known. And so that's who we'll be. In the grace of God, we're going to speak truth to power. And you know what ends up happening is this fear and intimidation from the outside. But you know what the enemy's plan is from the inside? Accusation. He uses accusation inside the church to divide. He sets us against one another by whispering in the ear lies. And what he does is he uses simple terms. He doesn't show up. Nobody has ever had the devil show up in a devil suit and say, I am about to accuse somebody to you right now. Listen up, because here comes my demonic accusation. What he says is, have you thought about so-and-so? Look at how they're acting. And he throws a little information at you to get you to assume something. And where assumptions run wild and relationship and conversation do not, accusation is able to fester. And so he uses accusation to set the church against itself. And it's the oldest trick in the book. It's divide and conquer. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, I was praying, I was asking the Lord to release revival. And I, I got this image of the church, and it was like on a battlefield. But the church was separated all the way across this battlefield. I mean, just this encampment and this encampment and this encampment and this. And it was so separated, it was weak everywhere. And then the enemy's forces came, and they just came. And you know the term, concentration of force. They just came in the middle, and like a beachhead, they just began to just tear up the army of God. I just saw this in my mind's eye. And I just began to pray, and I, and I knew the Lord was saying, for revival to be uh, broken through and for it to be sustained, the church has to be together. And I want to declare this, there is no white revival, there is no black revival, there is no Asian revival or Hispanic revival. There is a revival coming to the church of Jesus Christ that's going to touch every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And when we see the, when we see the throne room, when we see, when everything is said and done at the end of the age, and we see it in, in Revelation 17 and Revelation, I mean, Revelation 7 and Revelation 5, when we see the throne room scene, it's every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. This is the will of God. It's the dream of God. And guess what we have to do now? Get into agreement with it. Get into agreement with it. Revelation 12.10 says this, just to hammer home this, this point about accusation. John writing, he says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before God day and night, has been cast down. And I, I have these guys are like, where is he in the notes? These aren't in the notes. <laughs> I just, my prerogative to preach what's not in the notes, glory to God. 
But I, I felt strongly coming in here today to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit, are you listening to accusations about people of other cultures and other colors? Are you listening to accusations? Because if you are, you're playing right into the hand of the enemy. And I would just tell you, much of what I see in the news media, which I almost don't watch at all anymore, is just people levying accusations. Do you know what I found? Fear and hatred sells. They love fear and hatred so that they can keep us clicking on their links, keep us tuning into their programs. If it's going to stir up anger and hatred, they'll sell it to you in an instant. And they want to use it as points to accuse everyone that doesn't look like you. You know who that's just like? Lucifer himself. That sin of presumption, assumption, and accusation should not be named among the people of God. In the name of Jesus, it should not be named among any of us. Our heart should be the same as Jesus Christ. He prayed for unity. We need to live lives where we are moving toward unity. Now, let me tell you something. Unity isn't some shallow sugar high. It's not some little kumbaya, you know, just little pep rally. Unity it doesn't gloss over the issues of difficulty. Someone who's a peacemaker, they go into the challenge and they work through the issues until peace is made and then we can actually get into unity. You see, no one's saying gloss over the difficulties because the work of reconciliation, the work of unity, the work of being a peacemaker, it's one of the most challenging and difficult works there is. This last year... I've had dozens of conversations with pastors and leaders all over our city, and they're all over the spectrum. I'm talking uh, black pastors, Latino pastors, white pastors, Asian, and, and they're all over the spectrum. They're, they're not even in simple camps according to their culture. It's just people everywhere across the spectrum. And I just have to keep thinking to myself, there's a unifying voice in the gospel that we're all supposed to come around. And one of them for sure is that we should be fighting for unity at all costs. I know that's the heart of Jesus. Dr. King says this. He said this. Is it okay if I quote Martin Luther King in here? <laughs> he said this. Martin Luther King Jr. said, people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. Did you hear what Pastor Dustin said earlier? He said, you know, I was just a normal guy, thought I'd just mind my own business. He just didn't realize that there was anything that I needed to do or contribute toward a a conversation on, on racial unity, just thought, hey, you know, we just do what we do. He goes, until I realized that my black brothers had a different experience than me. And he said, and the only way that I was able to realize that was through relationship and communication. And he said that basically his silence about the issue ended up being a problem with the issue. 
and that that needed to be changed, that he actually had to engage. And beloved, that is really the truth. Unless you talk to people of other cultures, I'm talking white people with black people, Asian people with Latino, and all the mixes in between. Unless you talk to them about their story, you really don't know what they think. Because MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News are not presenting it properly. They're not. So you have to find one another. And with one another, you find Jesus together because that's where fellowship is. And so it's through relationship that we get to know one another and it's through getting to know one another that we trust one another and it's through trusting one another that we will love one another. Give me a second, guys. I'm sorry. It's funny that <clears throat> I just feel it's so crazy that I have to stand in front of the church and convince us to love one another. Oh, God, heal us that we'd really love. <sighs> Dr. King said this, he says, uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And oh, beloved, if we would finally choose to love, we would choose to love outside of what's normal for us, outside of our culture, outside of what we're used to, outside of what we think we know. I've had so many conversations with dear friends, people of other cultures, and when they tell me their story, it's just mind-blowing because they give me entrance into their life, and I realize, wow, my story growing up was completely different I grew up in Dunwoody, Georgia. I mean, like Dunwoody, like just kind of like suburban, you know, it's the picture of white suburbia. We had like four black people in our high school. And from a social and cultural standpoint, it was just easy. And I think about my friend, Anthony Breach, who's on staff over at Victory World Church. And I remember him telling me about growing up in Alabama. Man, I am so tender. I'm sorry. Growing up in Alabama, and as an eight-year-old looking out in his front yard, and there's a cross burning, and there's men with white hoods. And how that just marked him so deeply with fear. He grew up believing that white people all hated him. It wasn't until later in life that he began to meet white folks that didn't hate him. But the way that the ripple effects of something like that on an eight-year-old mind affects you for generations. I remember him telling me that story, and he was just risking with me, and he kind of told it to me in passing. And I went, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. Say it again? 
And he told me again, and it just washed over me, and I was just weeping with him. I didn't do that. You know, I'm not ashamed of being a white guy. God made me white. I mean, he just did. So I didn't do that to him. But understanding where he's at and empathizing with him, now we're advocates together to stand against that sin that reached out and so wounded him, we can stand together. And those are the kind of conversations that it takes. So one race, what is one race? It's a prayer movement, it's a unity movement, it's a Jesus movement, it's a revival movement. Like I said, it's not a political movement, it's not a social movement, we're not trying to start a new political party. Glory to God. That's all we need. Right now, we've got about 15 pastors groups across the city. We have a, 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 a business group that's head by some of the, headed up by some of the leaders of Chick-fil-A. And I'll just tell you, Chick-fil-A has been an amazing advocate for us in this moment. It's been fantastic. And, um, and we have about 250 pastors right now, and I think we've got more than that. These are just the ones we know of. I mean, just this Friday night, we did a, an event for young adults. We had 1,000 young adults packed in a room about as big as the center section, and it was hot, spiritually and in the natural. And it was like, I thought there was a few moments where the roof was going to blow off the place because there's such a hunger amongst the young generation to see unity, to be done with all this mess that's divided us and wounded us and kept us apart. We've done 25 events in the last, it's actually less than the last 12 months across the city. Prayer meetings and gatherings and and, and rallies. And we're gonna do 30 by the time we get to August 25th with a, a cooperative attendance of thousands and thousands and thousands. And in every meeting, there's this touch of God on it. There's this sense of unity on it that's just different, honestly, than anything I've ever felt. There is such a sense of camaraderie and fellowship. It's beyond what I've understood before. And it's all centered around these facets of tearing down racism and tearing down dead religion so we can see God move with massive reconciliation and massive revival. And so when you heard in the video this issue of apostolic government, what I think that is, it's pastors and leaders across cultures and across denominations. It doesn't matter where you're, where you're from, but all uniting together to stand against that historic wound of racism and the authority of Jesus Christ. See, when the church stands together in the authority of Jesus Christ, then we can shift principalities. Then we can shift the powers and the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And that's our aim. At the core of it, what is our aim? We're going after a historic principality of racism and dead religion. We're going to the stone mountain to the top of it, and we're going to stand together in unity and command that thing to fall. We're going to command it to come down in Jesus' name. So that's who we are. That's what we're doing. So why is it called One Race? One race. When we named it, we got the right response from people. Like, huh? Because 
you know, sometimes good marketing is just something that makes you stop and go, what is that? One race sounds like a supremacist thing. One race, are we doing a 5K? I had a bunch of people. Do I have to bring my shoes, jogging shoes? No, we got that from the Bible. Acts 17, 26. No, guys, that verse should be in there. Da-da. Acts 17, 26. He's made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. See, every human being was created from one common ancestor, Adam. And the blood that flows through my veins and the blood that flows through an African-American's veins and the blood that flows through an Asian's veins and the blood that flows through a Hispanic's veins, it's the same blood. It's the exact same blood. You know, this whole, and this is what I want to take aim at today, this whole issue of this term race. Because we've been sold a lie. And it's actually gotten into, and it's, it's really what we've understood is the difference between, say, black and white, Asian, Hispanic. We think it's race. Race is a fallacy. It's a falsehood. It's a deception. And I'm going to break it down for you today so you understand why it's a fallacy and a falsehood. And it's not any kind of an idea that the Bible actually gives us. The Bible gives us this, that we're all created from one single ancestor, that we all have the same blood, that there aren't many races, that there's one race, the human race, and it's the ones that God made. And so at the core of the the biblical theology of this this idea of culture and and human difference and and, and variation across cultures, at the very core of this idea is this theological term. It's called the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei. Everybody say that with me. Imago Dei. Imago Dei. It it simply means the image of God. The image of God. So Genesis 1, it says this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That statement, I know you probably know that because I know you probably read Genesis, but that statement is so unbelievably awesome created in the image and likeness of God. We love to use this term, you're an image bearer. You're an image bearer. When God decided to to make people, he looked at himself and created Adam. And he put within that, that man, he put within his DNA every possibility that, would, that could come, that would, that would cover the entire earth, that would express itself in many, many cultures, many, many nations. He put it all in that man, in his, in his DNA, in his genetic code. In all of us together, this massive tapestry of humanity. I want you to think about the, the whole tapestry of, of humanity across every nation. I mean, some seven billion people almost, just countless numbers of cultures, countless numbers of languages, countless numbers of, of colors. 
And we together are the image of God. Why? Why did it have to be so many people with so many, you know, unique traits and characteristics with so many, you know, distinctions among them? Why? Why did it take so many people? Because God, who is infinite, wanted to give us a little glimpse of himself, so he just painted a tapestry of seven billion. So when we look at it all together, we see him. We see him. The Imago Day. Can you conceive of the incredible dignity that God has installed and instilled in humanity that he would make us like himself? There's not a human being that's ever been an accident. Not one. There's not a human being that's ever been lesser than. Not one. There's, there's not a human being that has failed to carry the image of the creator. His fingerprints are all over you. You could be in this room this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus and that's, you know, that's something we want to help you to, to get. But at the same time, I want you to know something. God made you. You're made in his image and likeness. And it's only through coming back to the creator and knowing his love for us that our lives can even function properly. I've never seen anything work when you threw the directions out and just tried to make it work by itself. Humanity does that all the time. But our creator is the one who knows what you're made like, what you're made for. And every one of us bears his fingerprints. It's the Imago Dei. There's this massive dignity in humanity. All of us holds his facets in our, in our very being, which means this, that every human being is innately valuable. No matter what culture we're talking about, valuable. No matter what social strata we're talking about, valuable. No matter what their skin tone is, valuable, gifted, and graced by God to stand in the place of as, a, as an ambassador for him. You know, when nations choose ambassadors, they don't just choose the most, like, slack person. They choose a person that's going to represent that nation the best. And all of us across the cultural spectrum in Jesus Christ, we get to be ambassadors for the king. No and it's, it doesn't depend on what our culture is. Every human being valuable. Every human being ascribed with incredible dignity. And so here's the thing that we've got to understand. When there is disdain for any culture, when there is bias, prejudice, hatred towards any culture, that is expressly against the creation and the created order of God. Because God expressed himself in creation. So when human beings stand against a culture, they're not just standing against that individual culture, they're actually standing against the image of God. To say it more clearly, racism, therefore, is the Antichrist spirit. It's a demon. It's an antichrist spirit that hates God and because he can't do anything, because Satan can't do anything against God, what does he do? He takes it out on his image. 
And he uses his name, accuser, to get the people that God made to do his dirty work. Am I making sense this morning? So racism is an antichrist spirit. It's a demon. And to the extent that we agree with an antichrist spirit, that we agree with prejudice and bias and all these things, subjugation of cultures and supremacist ideologies, to the, agree, to the degree that we agree that certain cultures or colors uh, that are not like us aren't as good as us is the, the degree that we're agreeing with the devil. That should not be named at all in the people, among the people of God. And that needs to be repented of and turned from, and not just in words, but in actions and lifestyles and the way that we live. And I would just ask you this. This is just a, because I'm still, I'm just coming. I'm coming for you, so here I am. But when was the last time you had someone of another culture in your house? Glory. <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, interracial couples every day. But truly, when was the last time you were intentional across the cultural line? Because what we do is we may not ascribe mentally to racist ideology, but we will walk it out with our actions without even realizing it. Because everybody likes to be around what they're used to. Did you hear me? Let's just be honest. We like to be around what we like. I mean, if you like football and you like pizza, and if you're a Georgia fan, me and you are going to get along. I mean, we just are. Go dogs, that's right. There is a special grace that the Lord has to give me to love a Georgia Tech fan. I see you, Bart Jones. I see you. I see you, Michelle Jones. I love you. I feel the love of the Lord for you, brother. I know that God created me and you with the same blood. But we all like to be around ones that we're like. We like what we like. But it takes intentionality to cross over to something you're unfamiliar with and and people that may not be like you. You know what I've found? Is that when I've crossed cultural lines and found others of different cultures and had them in my home and been in their homes, you you know what I found? You get in there and you go, Man, we're not as different as I thought we were. Well, you know, science bears that out. Did you know every, every human being has 99.5% the same DNA? 99.5% the same DNA. In fact, I don't want to get geeky in science on you, but I like these kind of stats. They've gone through and they've done tests on people of same cultures and skin colors and then compared them to people of other different cultures and skin colors. And do you know what they found? They found greater variation within cultures than they did across cultures. So that 99.5 
is an average, but you might find between, say, say you're black in here and there's another black person, you may find that you're 99.2 with that other black person, but they might test you and you're 99.7 with the white guy sitting right next to you. Glory to God. My, now I'm just meddling. My, fav, my favorite is uh, the white supremacist guy. He was like from the, the, the north like the Montana up that region, I don't want to throw Montana under the bus, but up in that area, the United States, he's a supremacist radio host. And you know, nowadays they got this thing 23andMe and the you know, genealogy things. And somebody came on his radio program and said, I'll, I'll put $1,000 on it that you're not completely white. <laughs> this is hilarious. That dude bowed up full of his arrogant self and his hatred. He said, I know what I am. I'm an Aryan. I'm this and that. I said, all right, 23 and me, I'm buying it for you. So they did. They challenged him. Dude came back 7% African. Glory to God. <laughs> Which emphasizes the point. Race as an identifier is a fallacy. It's a fallacy. Now, supremacist ideologies historically in our nation, and you may not recognize this, but in the times of slavery, there was something called the one drop rule. That if an individual had one drop of black blood in them, they could be a slave. And then what they would do is flip the script when it came to land rights. And for, for the Native Americans, they had to have something like 75% Native American for them to keep ownership of their land. What is that? That's called supremacism. It's not unique to America. In fact, every dominant culture, population-wise, every dominant culture throughout history has subjugated the minority cultures. But our nation has a very, very unique, special brand of supremacy that ended up in something called chattel slavery, the forcible enslavement of subdominant cultures. And those ripples that started almost 400 years ago, they still continue in the hearts of many even to this day. And that's why we're dealing with this thing. It's because my friend Vincent, who's a pastor at Faith Center, where we were Friday night, where we packed those thousand young people into his church, who I was watching on live stream this morning before I came over here, was at the pool a month ago. And him and his beautiful daughters were there, and his little girl got in line to go up the slide. Because see, people want to, some people want to argue with you, well, racism is over, civil rights, you know. Well, his beautiful daughter gets in line to go up the slide to the pool, and there's a little white girl in front of her, and she's going to smile at her and make a new friend. And the little white girl turns around and goes, we don't like black people here. Now, you tell me where a six-year-old gets that. She didn't get that naturally. She got that passed down. And that's what we're taking aim at right now. We're taking aim at the heart of people to change the way you act, the way you think, the way you live. So let me just, can I give a, a slight science lesson, just a little bit? Just to, 
So the concept of race as a classification system, it's, it's actually not historically, you know, something from sort of the onset of language. It's actually new in the 1700s. And why would the 1700s be an appropriate time for the concepts of race? Because it's when the international slave trade was at its peak. And so what they had to do is they had to come up with a scientific explanation for why certain colors and cultures should be subjugated and certain colors should be dominant. And so the concepts of race began to get formulated. And so what you had was this interesting mix. You had, you know, Caucasoid, Mongoloid, Negroid, and they put them in a hierarchy. And they said, Caucasoid, it's, it's the most superior. Mongoloid's in the middle and Negroid's at the bottom. That worked really, really well for the slave trade. And so what ended up happening was this, that... Uh, by the 1800s, scientific debate on race, it, it, it grew beyond identifying physical differences to include the, the concept that racial variation was the result of humans having different origins. White people came from Adam, but black people and Asians, they didn't. And there were separate creations. And that's how they could you know, in the church, embrace the concept of races. So the classification set humans in a hierarchy. Obviously, that formed the basis for white supremacy and the justifications for slavery and segregation and anti-Semitism even. It was W.E.B. Du Bois that first argued that race was not a useful scientific category. And he showed that race was merely a social construct instituted to subjugate minority peoples. And so here's the thing. The word race, that when you study the etymology of it, it doesn't actually mean variations in human creation. It, it, it means something completely different. But through the, the science of the 1700s, 1800s, race became to be a distinguisher between you and me if we got different colors of skin. And so when when real science started getting into it, they started realizing a skin color has nothing to do with the creation of an individual. In other words, you can't say their skin is this color, thus their race is different. So they begin to go through the DNA of it all. And by the 1950s, the concept of race as a, a scientific category was completely discredited. There's much writing on it. If you want to go and just read some fascinating stuff on race, look at the, the stuff that came out in the 50s. The problem is the categories, they never left us. And so the identifiers remain, Caucasoid, Negroid, Mongoloid. And now, in common day, this concept of race is fully understood by anthropologists and, and all that are really in the scientific com uh, community that are, that are reasonable at all as a complete misnomer. It's a com they understand it's a complete falsehood that has no basis or scientific standing at all. In fact, Audrey Smedley, professor of anthropology at Virginia Commonwealth University and author of the new millennial edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica's entry on race, they're rewriting the definitions in the encyclopedia to express race as a misnomer because it's so 
poor scientifically. In fact, there's a push right now that on the 2020 passports and census reports, race won't even be an identifier among people in North America. Glory to God. But the point is, this is the point. You and I have been sold something that's false. We've been sold a term that's a misnomer. We've been sold a term that's a lie. I had a friend, he said this, he said, it was a racist who came up with the word race. I said, that's exactly right. (laughs) I prefer culture. I prefer culture because it expresses something more deep than just the color that you see on a person's skin. And, and, And culture speaks about not just what you look like, but where you came from. It, it, it speaks about what's normal for you, you, you what your family is like, what, what your history is like, what, what, what kind of you know, sp- special things do you do that are unique to, to you and your culture? Because you know, in America, before the concept of race came out, there used to be an understanding there weren't white people. You know, you know they were Italian, they were Polish, they were all sorts of different nations, and the cultures of those nations were very, very unique. But when race came in, it completely changed all that. I'm shedding my agreement with the term race. That's why we named it One Race, because we're all one. We all share the same blood, and we all carry the same value. And I'm just going to say this because You know what, you may be a person of color in here and you don't need me to say this, but I will say it for some that might need it. In this spiritual family, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, Asian, Hispanic. There is no ceiling on you to step into the gift of God. There is no ceiling on you as it relates to leadership, calling, anointing. We want a cultural, I mean, Mashup. We want an entire mixing pot. People from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation expressing their gifts, their God-given, you know, traits, all the cultural things. And the other thing is this: if you're a person of color in here, you don't have to act differently to fit in with the white people in this place. You bring your spiciness, we'll bring our milk. We'll mix it together. It'll be good. It'll be good. (laughs) I had a friend tell me one time, he's Irish. He goes, man, I'm Irish. He goes, milk is spicy to me. I go, okay, brother. (laughs) Last thoughts. God's design for humanity was never for us to live separate or segregated in any way. He wanted us to be together. He put in Adam and Eve the DNA of every culture and tribe. When humanity entered a place of sin and believed that they could be like God, Tower of Babel, God had to separate the languages so that humans wouldn't enter into an antichrist spirit prior to the time because they were imagining they could ascend to heaven and be like God. Does that sound like Lucifer? So he slowed down the sin of humanity, separated the dialects. The point wasn't ever to separate the cultures. His dream is that we would all be united in one bride, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's God's design. It was always his plan, and it's our starting 
point with God as we're to understand culture. Sin caused a separation between God and man, and sin has caused a separation ultimately between cultures. So whatever sin, therefore, is dividing us, it has to be repented of, and we have to turn the corner and walk this thing out as brothers and sisters across cultural lines. And I'm telling you, that's who we will be in this place, and I'm ecstatic to report to you there are many churches across our city right now today making the same call to their congregations. There is a changing of the tide in our city right now. Amen and amen. Let's all stand to our feet.